my name is Michel Nivar. I'm an uh, associate professor at the VU University in Amsterdam, and I'm a psychologist. I do a lot of statistical genetics work, uh, genetic epidemiology, and the primary outcomes I study are usually psychopathologies. I also study traits like educational attainment, SAS, social stratification, but mostly as they pertain in their relation to psychopathology. And, and in a similar fashion, I study where it's applicable personality as, as it relates to uh, psychopathology. It doesn't mean I'm solely interested in psychopathology, it's just that, that that's where for me all ends meet and where, where the, the useful application of what I think our, our work lies. I run what's called genome-wide association studies, where any given trait or outcome is related to every individual variant in the genome we can easily measure. And those are very data-heavy collaborative affairs. They never are one group. They are always collaboratively across the globe. My, my, my relation to personality is that I think it is, in terms of common variation, healthy variation in, in individuals, it's one of those. I wouldn't say, say set of variables because that, that's already that I'm aggregating them to something like a big five or, or to like domains, but like uh, they, they are variation between people that is systematic, fairly stable across the lifetime, uh, related in all kinds of ways to outcomes in life whether those are economic outcomes or, or risks of disease or psychopathology. Therefore, they're, they're very interesting. But uh, in current genetics, they are understudied. Michel Nimar, it's very nice to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Personality, as you say, is about variation and how people are different from one another. And so it's it's only natural that one of the first questions that comes up is about roles of genes uh, or and the environment or nature and nurture. Yeah. Maybe we, we should start by, by just reviewing briefly the, the main methodologies and findings that people have been using in, in personality genetics research and what they've been finding. Let's break this apart in a, in a, in a few things. There There is the obvious broad audience lay interest in nature versus nurture which is a certain framing already where we're saying it's either nurture your parents instructing you or, or aiding you in developing a certain personality or certain preferences in expressing yourself or nature it is biology and in, inborn sociologists would object they would tell you well you know there's other things than your parents rearing you or 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 biology and that that's that's an important caveat but historically the way people try to disentangle what they thought were believed to be nature and nurture is uh, through twin studies so you have a monozygotic twin so those are identical twins they share 100 percent of their dna and you have dicygotic twins twins that are fraternal and they share 50 percent of their segregating dna one misunderstanding is that there's the statement we share 98% of our DNA with uh, great apes, chimpanzees. That's true. But of that part of the DNA that, that varies between people with an identical twin, you share all of that. And with your fraternal twin or sibling, you share uh, half of that. And that's the part of the DNA that varies between people. And that's also the part of the DNA that we relate to outcomes. 
like for example personality and so historically that was studied by saying by by testing whether for example monopsychotic twins were more alike each other in terms of their neuroticism uh, than than fraternal twins and if that's the case monopsychotic twins are highly correlated and fraternal twins are uh, le- correlated less then that is obviously suggestive of but definitely not evidence of the fact that there may be genetic influences and there's other methods of getting at that there was for example comparing adopted children to their adoptive parents or to their biological parents with whom they didn't share a home to try and disentangle are you more like your environment or more like your biological relatives the immediate caveat i'd make as someone that studies this frequently is that whether something is heritable or not has very little to do with whether it's nature or biology. For example, imagine the biggest cause of lung cancer, to no surprise to anyone, is smoking. Now, smoking is heritable, and a good chunk of the heritable influences on lung cancer are through smoking, right? And so if we ban smoking, or if we go back to the 1400s when there was no tobacco, right, because the tobacco is is native to South America, Uh, lung cancer may have been less heritable. And so a good chunk of the heritable influences on lung cancer are through a behavior, a behavior we can modify with laws, a behavior we can disencourage, all kinds of influences on that. It's a really open question whether you want to say that's nature. And, And this is a very clear example where we know the causal structure, right? Because we know smoking causes lung cancer. Even if you say that something is heritable, this doesn't relieve people from the responsibilities for their flaws, for example. I would state it doesn't relieve governments of their obligation to try to minimize the harm. So I don't necessarily think the the solution to, uh, again, smoking is necessarily individual, it could be collective. And the same, I don't see why there wouldn't be similar structures in place in, in society, right? For example, my one of my kids is a little very extroverted she she likes hugging everyone even kids that don't necessarily like to be hugged and it's all a comment upon me to teach her she's now six she doesn't really know those boundaries yet that other kids are like slightly frightened if she hugs them physically very hard those are guardrails i put in place on her personality the, the analogy with the smoking isn't very direct here, but but obviously you can imagine, like with the smoking and lung cancer example, there's many, many examples where something that is heritable is simply heritable through social processes, not through biological processes. So the nurture-nature uh, distinction starts to fall apart really quickly. And so that's that's a really interesting departure point for a discussion on, on heritability on nature and nurture is to realize that the studies people do to determine whether something is heritable or not, they don't always give you information on whether something is biological. That is a very important point to make because I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable with the behavior genetic studies and results because they somehow think that this means that the traits that we're studying are fixed. And inchangeable. And, you know, and and the, the, the most used example in teaching behavior genetics to undergraduate students is also that for example, there are many, very many forms of inborn uh, or, or inherited myopia. But if you wear glasses, then then all of the consequences thereof are negated, right? So you can have a fully environmental uh, influence on how well your eyes work, uh, which can be uh, alleviated immediately by wearing glasses. Now, in the 1500s, when glasses were inaccessible, any heritable effects on how well your eyesight was would translate into your ability to read. 
uh, or even learn to read. And nowadays, that's no longer the, an issue in most, you know, well-developed Western countries. The genes that influence eyesight, they don't necessarily have to relate to how well you do in school because we have an environmental intervention. It's interesting you mentioned this because myopia is obviously highly heritable. On the other hand, there are, have been these recent reports showing how much myopia prevalence has increased lately and as a result of COVID. Sure. I'll give you a, another example of how we use genetics these days. There is this longstanding hypothesis that reading text close to your eyes will actually influence your eyesight quite a bit. And what you would expect is people that go to school longer for whatever reason be it environment or ability or anything really, they will have poor eyesight in the long run because they will read more because the ability to sit down and read, it comes with having learned to appreciate to read, having gotten that opportunity. And so any gene that will associate for whatever reason with how long you stay in school, it will start to associate with eyesight in the long run. And so we can actually start tracing causal relations between exposure and outcome. So in this case, education and eyesight and figure out which ways those directions work. I'm not saying these are biological or immutable relations. I'm just saying the genes give me a hook to start to figure out what's going on. To start to figure out, does change in schooling lead to poorer eyesight if people read more? And those things we can start studying with modern behavior genetics. The first step we have to take is to basically accept that genes aren't biology. They, they take up all kinds of paths. It doesn't mean genes are never biology. There are plenty of genes that do biological things and that are very important for our behavior, but it isn't always the case. Now we have carefully laid the ground for introducing some of the most well-established findings of the personality behavior genetics. So yeah. what are they? What are they? Okay. So one really confident finding people made, people like Elliot Tucker Drop have done amazing meta-analyses on it, is that as you grow through puberty, uh, your personality scores on the, the measures we use nowadays, they become incredibly stable. And the genetic influences on those, whatever they may be, and we don't know whether they're biology or some other process, they become even more stable. People, while they do have changes in personality over their life course, their rank order of people becomes very stable. And basically, whatever genetic influences there are on that, which we just established, are necessarily biology, right? Those are extremely stable. Like they're almost the same when you're 18 as when you're 35 or 40 or 45. And that's, I think, very remarkable. I think many people subjectively experience some change in themselves. You ask them, have you changed in any way? They will have a host of answers and often related to their personality. But if you do empirical tests, they appear very stable. So that's one finding. Another interesting finding is that many of the common defined personality traits, especially neuroticism versus stability, that axis is strongly related to all kinds of psychopathology genetically. And that's interesting because some psychopathologies are very rare. We're talking bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, those are very rare. And it would be hard phenotypically or just in an observational study to relate those two, right? Because you don't have that many people with schizophrenia in your sample. So it's hard to compare them to rest. But because we have a genome-wide association study of schizophrenia and a genome-wide association study of neuroticism, we can start to see that the same genes play a role. It's another question why that's the case, right? That, that's for later. But we, we're already starting to see these things correlate. And then this other interesting observation that relates personality to success in life is that when we parse 
the influences on how far you get into school in a part that we can attribute to your cognition, to your cognitive apparatus, to how well your mind works in a school setting, basically, and a part that is not your cognitive abilities that that we call, for lack of a better term, we call those non-cognitive abilities. Right? We see that what people consider favorable personalities in modern society, uh, so agreeable, conscientious, that those relate to success in school. Again, that doesn't mean that they are better traits, right? Or that we should think that they will always relate to better success in school. It's just our school system in its current form rewards people that are agreeable and that are conscientious. Everyone that's tried to skip a class now and then and gotten their head teacher, tell them to sit quietly in a room for a couple hours, knows that there is a certain reward for being agreeable and conscientious and making your homework. So we're, we're learning things about our, our current school system, I'd say, not necessarily about biology of people there. But those are things we can start tracing from uh, genetic findings. So we're using genetic findings to do better uh, psychology or better sociology. And it is exciting to start incorporating personality in that because genetics is mostly run by with people with serious and well-defined interests in health outcomes for good reason. There is immediate potential to start translating genetic findings when it comes to a neurodegenerative disease or when it comes to uh, heart disease. And so it took us a while to start doing the genetics of personality. But now that genetics has come of age, I, I'm really excited to start doing more of this molecular genetics of personality. That's very interesting because we have been talking about sort of two strands of personality behavior genetics. One is the more sort of classical strand where you studied with twins and family studies where we compare people who are genetically related in terms of their traits and then see based on this how much variance basically in the population we can ascribe to genetic or environmental causes. And we found like 40% of variance on average across personality traits, yeah. something like this we can ascribe to genetics. Now yeah. you, you, you're, you're talking about modern perspective that you are following in your research, which yeah. is based on the genome-wide association study. So maybe you won't walk our audience sure. through these methods. Right. So a genome-wide association study basically means I take thousands of research subjects and measure their genome and I measure their personality. And I start to relate every individual segment of their genome I can measure to their personality. And some of those regions will have a relationship to their personality. Then I don't know what those relationships are yet. In other cases, uh, when it doesn't come to personality, for example, for smoking, the, the biggest signal is in a gene that's part of the nicotinic receptor complex. So that's the receptor on your brain cell that processes nicotine into the cell. Well, that's an obvious one, right? And for number of drinks you would drink in, in a given week, uh, we find uh, SNPs or uh, genetic variation, genetic parts of the genome that are in a gene that encodes processes of alcohol in your liver. Sometimes you get really obvious biology where you're just like, ah, see, that's very obvious that that's how this works. But not for personality traits, yeah? Not for personality, no. Well, not for most of psychiatry, right? We've We've done this for a while now. There are studies with millions or hundreds of thousands of people in there, and we're only just starting to find, for some psychopathologies, we've found like evidence for certain types of brain biology that relate to the psychopathologies, and that, that is informative, and that will get us somewhere, but that took way longer. And for personality, we're not even there yet, right? So uh, we're doing studies with, let's say, 50,000 or 60,000 individuals, in some cases, even like 400,000 individuals. And we are finding parts of the genome that relate to neuroticism, like up to 100-something regions. And we are seeing those regions of the genome, the genes that are in those regions are expressed more in the brain, 
they are expressed more in neurons, but I mean, I don't think anyone would have expected them to be expressed elsewhere, right? This, this is encouraging that those genes are in, in regions that are expressed in the brain and neurons, but at the same time, the alternative finding that they that would have been unacceptable, right? So this is like crossing the minimum threshold of like where you're like, yeah, that makes sense. These signals are related to something in the brain that will shape your personality. But how that happens, we we have no idea yet. So the genome where does decision studies where we take these millions of little variations along the genome and just run basically a million regression models and link these to individual traits. Maybe there are some things we we could also discuss, which I've heard in in relation to these studies. Sure. One term is polygenicity, and yeah. the other term is pleiotropy. And they're really fundamental to understanding the sort of genetic architecture of, of complex-like yeah. personality traits. So maybe you want to introduce these two. Sure, that's a, that's a good way to introduce them. So I, I think I implicitly already landed on polygenicity, right, by telling you hundreds of regions are related, which means that any one of those regions cannot be a very big determinant of personality, right, because they all have an effect. All those effects are small biggest effect of a common variant on something like BMI, so not even personality, explains like 0.4% of variation. Every one of those variants has a small effect and those effects are replicable. So if we run the GWAS, genome-wide association study in England, and we run one in America, we get the same genetic variants up to a reasonable degree. And the polygenicity makes it so that there is not one strong gene for how neurotic you are or how extroverted you are. There are thousands of small effects. And, and, and so what I would take away from that, if I'm not a geneticist, if I'm like a neuroscientist or a personality psychologist, I would take away from it that it's also very likely this means that at higher organizational levels, like neuroscientific organizational levels or psychological organizational levels, there won't be big causes because those two things seem very incompatible, uh, right? If it was one neuroscientific system, like one certain type of synapse that, that, that had a strong causal role in mm -hmm. the shape of our personality, we would also see SNPs or genes related to that system pop up in our GWAS, but we don't. So the pleiotropy also, I think, is part of the same story, right? Yeah, pleiotropy is this other thing where basically every genetic variant, every part of the genome we research is related to many outcomes, sometimes in the same direction, right? So sometimes a variant may increase your risk of developing psychosis, but also make you more neurotic. So sometimes it's in the, in the direction you expect uh, in this case. Like you could also find opposite uh, directional effects, right? Uh, a variant that makes you uh, have a higher risk of uh, smoking may may also make you less extroverted, which may not be a, a direction we necessarily expect. And so there is no gene for any outcome, basically, other than some very obvious examples, but especially in personality, those don't exist. So there is no gene for neuroticism. There is no gene for extroversion because there are many genes that relate to those outcomes. And those genes, even those many, have relationships to all kinds of outcomes. And so this means there, that, that there is no naive search in our field for the gene for personality or the gene for extroversion. There is just an ongoing effort to map the effects of all regions of the genome on all kinds of personality. And that's what we do. I think this is very important message that we should you know, help to get across is that the genes don't work in a straightforward way. And there is a many, many, many to many, many relationship between genes and our phenotypes. But 
people will have read from newspapers the stories that, okay, we discovered an extroversion gene or neuroticism gene or aggression gene or risk-taking gene or this or that. So yeah. these are probably some more like sensational news stories than mm -hmm. reality. To a, to a degree, right? Scientific communication is our fault as scientists as much as it's the journalist's fault and, as much, and then even part of the fault maybe lies with readers or people who share things on social media outside of context but like primarily this is our doing right this is this is an history a generation of maybe underpowered scientific work where we thought we found one gene but it didn't replicate or it turned out to be a true effect but it's we forget to contextualize it with well it's actually only as a very small influence on your personality right so it's only a very minor contributor to to uh, who you be, who you grow up to, how about your personality is shaped. Those are never true, those stories. There is really in psychology and in psychiatry, no gene for anything, no individual gene. One important caveat is there are rare uh, genetic defects where if a certain gene is like, and that those are rare, like as in one in 10,000 or one in 100,000 people inherit them or spontaneously uh, arises due to mutation between generations. And those can obviously um, influence your psyche quite a bit. And they would obviously also be manifest in personality, right? But when, when we think of a, you know, a rare genetic disease or disorder, we don't necessarily see the personality as a primary outcome. But on the other hand, I mean, the fact that we find that there's sort of common genetic variants, uh, as we typically study them in the GEO studies, are have very tiny individual effects and individual differences in the population. Does yeah. this necessarily preclude the possibility that each one of these genetic variations in certain individuals, they can have massive mm -hmm. effects, just that they don't show up averaged across uh, hundreds of thousands of people. But individually, for me, for example, there is a gene that has made me the way you are. It isn't mm -hmm. the gene that has made you the way you are. That's an interesting notion. I mean, the, the, we're talking heterogeneity of the effect, right? The affine gene might have an effect that's bigger in some people than in others. You could even think of that in terms of gene environment correlation. Does the gene have a, a different effect in repressive societies than in open societies, right? So, and, and, and you could even drift accidentally into the evolutionary discussion of like, oh, is, is it negative for your health outcomes in life to be extroverted in a society that doesn't appreciate that or that, that, that actually represses that strongly? My main worry is that that could be the case, but we haven't seen that yet right we, we haven't seen any strong examples where 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 individual variants have a strong effect but it's very localized to do a very certain set of circumstances now it doesn't mean it doesn't exist because those things are hard to find but i wouldn't it wouldn't be the first stone i'd turn to find like the etiology of personality um i personally think the effect that we see such extreme polygenicity for something as personality is just the fact that it is an outcome of very many processes, some direct, biological, that are that are fairly, you know, uh, straightforward, something, a variant changes something slightly in your brain, which has a certain subtle influence on a system uh, during development, which has a tiny influence on personality. Now, you can imagine those effects cannot be very big. 
Donald Fisher figured this out when he basically said whether is or no Francis Galton figured this out when he said you know where does the normal distribution comes from for traits it has to come from multiple causes right and right many causes with small effects will very likely tend to to something being sort of normally distributed and 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 yeah that that, that is true so basically the, the use of those tiny genetic effects I think personally is now that we know which genetic effects have some contribution to say extraversion or say neuroticism uh, and when we can even think of other personality aspects but starting with those you can start tracing what other phenotypes they relate to and you can start relating those to the personality aspect so for example if you have an early speech defect something you grow over but lots of children start uh, with a slight stutter or uh, my, my own daughter has a lisp and i could kind of see that she doesn't like speaking up first because she's self-conscious about it and you can imagine that is ever so slightly heritable it will make her more comfortable being slightly introverted no i think there is there is something that is counterintuitive to many people is that when we Obviously, the idea is that if we do genetic studies, then ultimately the hope is that we'll build towards some sort of theory uh, about why mm -hmm. people are different, right? And then I think sure. intuitively, most people would think, okay, this theory has to be biological because genes yeah. are biological, so they have to sure. somehow make their way up. But ironically, what might happen is that the genetic findings might help to build, if anything, sociological or, or sure. psychological theories of, of individual differences. I, I think so too. Eric Lander, who was involved deeply with the Human Genome Project in its original instantiation, uh, and, and others have expressed similar sentiments, like uh, George Davy Smith, the famous epidemiologist from Bristol, have expressed in different ways the notion that we don't do genetic research to learn about genes. I mean, some people do, clearly those interested in rare genetic diseases do, but the, the other people doing genetic research want to link, for example, biology to an outcome. And in our case, that may be personality, but there's also people that want to link uh, sociological processes to an outcome, right? And the genes do not tell you through which path they end up being related to the outcome uh, you find them for, uh, and th their effects are also not immutable, right? Because if you go back to the example of uh, lung cancer and smoking, if we had been able to run a GWAS in 1300 for lung cancer, there would be no effect of the nicotinic receptor gene because there was no nicotine in Europe at the time, uh, because the plant wasn't outside of South America yet. And so we find that one of the most promising applications of genetics for psychology may be sociological. But I don't want to necessarily create the impression that it's going to be only sociology or only psychology, right? I don't know. I don't know those answers, and I don't think anyone knows yet. But it is a fascinating uh, prospect to start to find out what these genetic effects can teach us about the underlying causes of variation in personality and start to do intercultural comparisons. If, say, extroversion is severely penalized in some societies, but rewarded in other societies, you would, and then I mean penalized and, and, and rewarded, not necessarily in any, you know, criminal justice sense, but like in the sense that you get further along in school, then, then we would start seeing 
that any gene related to extroversion starts relating to success in school in one society and, and, and failure in school in a different society. And those are the kinds of things we can start disentangling once we have genome-wide association studies of personality. And so at this point in the field, there's this interesting thing going on, right? So where the public discourse around every a genetic study of personality or psychopathology or uh, even education is, is surrounded with controversy and, and, and discussions online with people shouting back and forth like it is determined uh, you, you guys are, are misleading us and and both those camps are uh, you know missing the point that this isn't about uh, nature or nurture uh, these findings don't don't show that one way or the other these genetic facts are just causal hitchhikers. They just end up influencing education because we've shaped society in a way that whatever they influence biologically or sociologically is rewarded by our society. And, and that's what they do. And, and we can use those causal hitchhikers to trace back to the cause. Part of the reason is these findings have been sort of hijacked by, by people who have certain agendas, right? So they want yes. to prove a certain point and then say, hey, you know, we, there is this evidence coming from these and these studies that traits are heritable. And that, yes. that proves my point. So, I mean, and, and, and vice versa, there are people that do not want to hear about any genetic effects. And, and I usually take the point that those people probably aren't arguing against me, right? I, they're probably arguing against the other side in that sort of perpetual argument about causes an individual uh, as, a, as a concept of like that's your individual fault or uh, you know heritable things are, are set in stone and we need to shift policy based on that those are given the history genetic has are very understandable debates and we should keep informing uh, our audience uh, how we really perceive uh, genetic effects and we don't necessarily see those as immutable or set in stone or uh, you know pure biology and i think we will i think sort of the, these things will prove themselves right so some of the biggest interesting findings in the genetics of any social outcome uh, in i'd say the last five years is the fact that uh, genetic influences on educational attainment right so there's been genome-wide association studies of educational attainment those are met with skepticism and and also with you know people celebrating like see it as all heritable but but the, one of the interesting parts of those findings is that that when once you start inspecting them really carefully and you start checking whether carrying a gene which predisposes to more education between me and you right so let's say that the allele gives me a month more of education across my life than you if i were to compare myself to my brother who may not carry the allele as well because we ne don't necessarily inherit the same alleles from our parents the effect would reduce to like two weeks right so we're we're noticing that that the heritability of something so socially complex as educational attainment when studied in a group of large group of unrelated people it may be estimated at like 20 or ish percent so that's that's the heritability we can attribute to genes we have found or we, we study in the genome the total heritability of something like educational attainment is set at like uh, 35 or 40 percent usually but those effects those that 20 percent that drops dramatically when you compare within family and and this is in retrospect fairly logical because you know the alleles that make me do a bit better in school they have had their effects in my parents in our current society which means they've made more money and therefore can afford a better school for me, right? So 
the genes aren't only influencing your own outcomes, they're also influencing your outcomes because they've influenced your parents' outcomes. And I'm really excited to figure out whether certain similar processes are at play for personality, right? I'm, I'm super excited to go and find out whether alleles that predispose your parents to certain outcomes have an influence on you via the parental environment. And that could be really interesting sociological or psychological work. My prediction here is it's probably less true for personality traits because there is less sort of this unidirectional pressure in the society to push people in a in a certain direction as there is for education. Like for every individual in every Western circumstance, we think you know more is better. Yeah, there is definitely sort of a a pressure. Well, you know, I'm I'm parent of young children, and I already see this. There's like in every most societies, there's a huge pressure for kids to do better in school. It's not uniform across societies I, I don't think that's necessarily true but it's there for sure and that's that will create these effects right people will use their means and their their abilities to shield their children get them into better schools and get them to go further in life and and, and that effect is obviously there and it won't be as directional for personality i agree uh, i could even you could even imagine counterintuitive effects where a more Alleles that have an effect of making a parent more extroverted may make a child more introverted. I don't like I'm now we're well into the world of speculation, right? Uh, but you could imagine sort of like niche picking or counterintuitive effects. Mm. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is we can start finding out, yeah. right? Because we now have these causal hitchhikers, these genetic alleles, these alleles that, that, that we can find out in one really big study relate to your extroversion. Once we've done that, we can go to a slightly smaller study and start finding out, okay, but what if your parents have many of these alleles? They're very, they're more extroverted. Does it have an influence on you? So again, then we're doing, if you listen carefully to the last three sentences, we're doing sociology or psychology or family psychology using genetics. We're not doing anything biology, biological then. We're just saying, okay, you now taking these alleles as causal hitchhikers, and their effects in our current society. Can we learn about the relationship between family members and how their personalities interact? The mm -hmm. counter argument I get a lot from psychologists is, well, why don't you just measure personality, right? Why don't you just, if you want to study personality in families, why don't you just measure it? Uh, and that's a good argument, right? Sometimes it is sort of like you see geneticists trying to find a shoehorn genomes into like problems that have very little to do with genetics but oftentimes it can also be insightful and to give you an example of that last part let me take you through one more example that's unrelated to to personality just because we all probably agree on the causal process there's this theory that vitamin d reduces your depression the problem is in studying it you also absorb more vitamin d if you go out into the sun and so it may very well be that depressed people stay indoors and therefore get less vitamin d if that's the case, then vitamin D isn't the cause of depression, but it's an outcome. Now, you can find out by running a 20 or 40 or 50 million US dollar trial, and people have done that. They've given 10,000 people, half of them get vitamin D, half of them don't. They follow them for five years, and then they measure depression. And it turns out there's no significant difference in depression between the people that get vitamin D and the people that don't, which is a shame because we've just wasted 50 million US dollars in research funding. Now it happens to be true that there is like a few genes that have a very strong and biologically plausible relationship to vitamin D. Namely, they metabolize it in the liver or they process it through the skin or they absorb it from food. And we know their biology well. By 
checking whether those alleles relate to depression, we can exclude the possibility that, that vitamin D causes depression, right? Because if mm-hmm. the level of vitamin D in my body was related to whether I get depressed, then alleles that I have or don't have that make me absorb more or less vitamin D would also make me more or less depressed. It's like a little uh, randomized control trial. You know, we can do similar things for personality. We can start like looking at the cause and effect without having to do randomized control trials. And in fact, I would argue as psychologists, we can't do trials. That is, We can't make people less neurotic in a systematic manner at a scale we need to, uh, to study, you know, the lifetime consequences of neuroticism. I don't think it'd be ethical to go and change 20,000 people's neuroticism levels. Before we end, I think maybe the last yeah. sort of main point is it all comes down to power and statistical and genetics. Sure. And I think that's one of the aspects that the, the modern behavioral genetics stands out among other fields of psychology is the, is the sample sizes that you guys are u- using there. And there seems to be a clear trend, right? So that the, as the samples get bigger and bigger, the discoveries get more and more likely and the effect sizes, mm-hmm. at least in terms of our ability to predict some outcome from, from the genomic variation gets yeah. slightly better. So you, for example, we've talked about educational attainment. We moved mm-hmm. from like 100,000 samples to 3 million now, and it's linearly getting better, the prediction sure. of genome of education. With personality, we are nowhere there yet so we are now on the smaller side so what do you predict if we in i don't know 10 10 years maybe 20 years how big samples we will have then in okay. genetics and how strongly then using these samples can we predict someone's i don't know extraversion sure. level from their genomic that's an interesting question basically we can estimate the totality of the effect hidden in the genome before we ever get to those samples of three or five million, right? So for example, for a height, they've just, just done a GWAS of six million people and making a score based on the results of that GWAS for someone that's not in that sample can predict 40 or 50% of variation in height in, in people that aren't in that GWAS. So that's like a really good out of sample prediction. But well before we got to that point, we could statistically establish that the signal in the smaller high GWASs was hiding a total of 40 or 50% of variation. Similar estimates for personality will get you something like uh, 15 or 20%, uh, maybe 10, depends on the personality trait. But like, say extroversion, you get like what's called a SNP heritability. That's sort of the heritability we attribute to common variation, the things we measure in GWAS, of like 15%. So if we were to measure, let's say, five or six million people and, and measure their extroversion well, you would expect to eventually explain with a, a genetic score 15% of the variation in their extroversion. Now, that's not a lot. And, and you should realize, and your, your listeners should realize, we would never go genotype people to find out their extroversion because you could just give them an extroversion scale or just like get to know them for two minutes and know more about their extroversion. Like if you sit there quietly two minutes and they start talking, you know more about your extroversion than by the genetic score. But we get these genetic scores in any biological study, right? In any bioepidemiological study that we do, we find we, these, these scores come for free, right? Because if we genotype someone for a study, we can compute these scores. So basically it means we could consider extroversion or the score for extroversion as a risk factor in studies. 
if we do different extroversion scales, for example, scale one mm -hmm. and scale two, and we calculate their correlation, you get on average something like 0.60 on a good yeah. day, 0.70. So now if your genetic score is 0.40 or yeah. you know, in a good day, 0.50 correlation with the measured extroversion, you're not actually that far off. And that's a good point, but it's also an, uh, an interesting nuance. I had a reason from height, right? Where if I measure height in Dutch people and Estonian people or in English people, the measure is in centimeters and it's fine. And so the GWASs are easily combined, right? Because we're looking at the exact same outcome. But if we're going to do a GWAS of 5 million people of extroversion, then we're going to use many scales and many samples and combine all the results. We're going to lose some power, right? Because those scales, as you say, they only correlate 0.6. There's, there's a reasonable expectation we may lose a bit of that 15%. So, you know, we'll see. It is hard to say where we'll end up. It's not unreasonable to expect it would be 12 or 15%. And that wouldn't be low, but that wouldn't be the goal either, right? So it's good to keep in mind those effects aren't necessarily biological. We just reason through all that. So they, they may be fixed in our current society, but if we wait 200 years or we take those scores to a different society, then they won't necessarily work as well for both social and biological reasons. And it's not the goal of genetics to make these scores. They're acute byproducts. And yes, if you try to predict cancer risk or heart disease risk, then those scores are, are useful. The personality scores aren't the point. The point is for me as a psychologist to be able to take a sample of a couple of thousand families that are well characterized and have super solid personality measures and go and relate the personality of one sibling to the scores of the other sibling to see whether there is this niche picking going on, to see whether there is some effect of whether the firstborn is more extroverted or the secondborn is more extroverted. And there, the fact that you randomly inherit those genes comes in again. There's no predetermination whether the first or the second child is more extroverted, but does it matter? I'd love to find out. And there, those scores can really come in handy. And that's what I'm excited about. Well, thank you. I think this is a very good note to end with. Uh, thanks for having me.